Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to Life Lessons. In this episode, I'm joined by the double Olympic champion, Alistair Brownlee. Now, Alistair is the only triathlete in history to successfully defend an Olympic gold medal. He won his first at London 2012 and backed it up by repeating the trick in Rio in 2016. Now, Alistair is also a two-time world champion, a four-time European champion, and the 2014 Commonwealth champion. So basically his trophy cabinet is overflowing. The theme of this week's conversation is peak performance and we discuss a number of topics including the power of instinct and flow as well as the importance of preparation and letting go. We cover taking calculated risks, how you don't need to feel confident to be successful and how a lack of connection can lead to burnout which is something many people can relate to over the last couple of years of lockdowns and remote working. Alistair has interviewed a number of elite athletes from different sports about what took them to the top and kept them there for his book, Relentless. And we cover much of what he learned in this conversation. And I hope you enjoy listening. Alistair Brownlee, how's it going? Really good, thank you. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. I have actually interviewed you once before. London 2012, just before the parade, you were still with your brother just before you were getting on the buses. And I came up for a bit of a chat. That was obviously after you won Olympic gold. But now the interesting thing, I think, is you've been on the other side. You've been on this journey, haven't you, of doing the interviewing. So you now know what it's like for people in my position. Yeah, I do know what it's like. I joke a little bit that I'm going to have more sympathy and time for interviewers from from now on. Um, I think the first thing to say is, yeah, I just found it a challenge, you know, fascinated in the subject that I was talking about sport and performance and 
what motivates is it inspires people and and how uh, people get the best out of themselves essentially and it's one thing sitting down in the pub having a chat like that and, and another very different thing sitting across from people in in various forms you know whether it's their living room actually in a pub in the garden uh, on zoom or whatever and trying to get them to in some way to answer questions but also the interviewees to talk you know for it to come kind of quite naturally out of them the things that not what I wanted them to say I wanted them to say what they wanted to say you know I had ideas that I wanted to talk about things like um, motivation perseverance conviction you know etc etc and uh, you're trying to have a conversation so at one time I'm listening to the answer while also taking notes and also looking at my notes of where I want to steer the conversation but listening to the answer so it's a proper conversation and that's the thing that I found most challenging I think. Do you feel that you're interviewing skills developed over the course of the project i think so uh, and i hope so if you uh, have any of my interviewees on your podcast in the future um yeah i'd, I'd appreciate it if you are if you are if i was any good ask them if i was any good <laughs> you collected a fascinating group of people together some brilliant stories and a lot of them actually have already been on the pod and let's dive straight in then with one of them who has one of British sports' great characters, <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan. And it makes me laugh, actually, because I could sense that you had a bit of trepidation before interviewing him. But he's a, he's a really lovely, sensitive bloke, isn't he? Really lovely bloke. And as it turned out, he, um, he couldn't give me enough time. I've met him a few times, but I was talking to his manager or someone to start with. Uh, anyway, eventually just... Ronnie, I think he just gave me a ring, to be honest, and said, look, uh, I'm going to be home this week. Can you make it to my mum's house uh, any of these nights, effectively? And we just set it up like that, went went round for a lasagna uh, <laughs> and an interview. And yeah, we just we just <laughs> chatted it. It was fascinating. Some of them, I don't know where you find this, some of them did feel more like interviews and some of them felt a lot more like kind of just informal chats, you know, pub chats in some ways. and Chats. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had with Ronnie did just feel like a, a really good chat. Yeah, I felt exactly the same. But something that leapt out at me from your chat with him was a couple of things. One, you frame it round that time when he did that 147 in three and a half minutes or something ridiculous. He came out with this really interesting quote, which I thought was, was quite revealing. And I, I wonder to what degree you can relate to this, where he said that if he'd have actually slowed down and thought about it, he thinks he probably would have actually missed one of those shots. That element of being in the flow, in zone, not thinking about it, just acting on autopilot. So did that stick out to you? And could you relate to that? Absolutely. No one's ever going to know whether he would have missed a shot or not if he if he slowed down. But yeah, for sure, when things are happen- happening quickly... Um, in real life, high pressure situations where there's a, a hell of a lot of controllable and uncontrollable variables, you know, obviously the instinctive, unconscious part of your mind is the part of the mind that can basically hand the, handle the data at, at that speed. And so, yeah, it makes it makes an awful lot of sense that, um, yeah, he, he was acting. We use this word instinct a lot. It's maybe not the most accurate word to use, but acting on instinct in a very automatic kind of maybe flow like sense and yeah i can kind of agree with that from my own experience i think the the main way to describe it is that i you know when i'm having a 
a very good race or competition, the time the time passes very quickly, and um, you know can quite often tell you every detail of what's happened, but wasn't thinking about it at the time. If, if it's a bad competition or bad training session, you know your mind wanders and you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner, or you're not mm-hmm. in the situation anymore. And that's the kind of anecdote of of what that feeling mean means to me. Do any experiences really stand out where you've really been in the flow or in the zone? Quite a lot. I think um, most sports people will talk about maybe a handful of um, competitions maximum where they just had the kind of perfect day they possibly could. And definitely I've got those. One particular race, um, I think, thankfully, uh, both my Olympic Games experiences when I've I've won have have been really, really positive and like that. You know, I just... um, was there in the morning before the race and the days before the race, knowing that I was in the best position I could be in, you know, I had everything prepared. And I think for me, that's the main thing. Um, having that kind of tidiness in my mind of knowing that I've made all the the preparations in terms of physical and physiological that obviously go on for months before, but also the kind of tactical and technical stuff that, you know, I know my bikes in perfect working order. I know, um, how I'm going to put my shoe on in, in transition and, I know how I'm going to get tra- through transition, those things. And um, yeah, take a lot of kind of confidence and peace uh, and kind of stability of mind f- from doing that preparation, which I think leads to probably that kind of um, that state of mind. Yeah, I agree with that because you need to have that r- relaxation. And like, for example, if I'm talking to someone like you, if I know that I've read your book, I've done the notes, I've picked out the bits I want to talk about, then the preparation's been done. And then actually, it's a case of really letting go. That seems to be the way to get in the flow. You've done the preparation so that the confidence or, or the, the, the faith that you've done the work is there. But then actually it's about letting it go and letting it be in the background. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you're right. You, you take a, a, a true form of confidence from doing the work rather than a false form of confidence from telling yourself you're in a good position, but you're not. And I think that's in all sports of in all parts of life, you know, you can stand on the start line and tell yourself you're in a great situation when you haven't done any any training or as much. And, and you know, that's false confidence. That's a bad thing. So you need real, true uh, confidence. And then you're absolutely right. Um, you, you then need to be able to let go. And I think um, in a sporting context, you know, my um, thought process for that is to stand on the start line and They'll say, you know, look, I've done all the work now. Um, what's going to happen is going to happen. I can only do what I'm going to do. Go out there and say, you might as well relax and have this kind of relaxed outlook to it. And yeah, that's that's always been my approach. I think there's a, a few things why that's important. I think the first thing is promoting this kind of flow um, and uh, just good decision making mindset, where you're you're effectively, I, I guess, the theory of the you know the whole thinking fast and slow thing is you're. Uh, inhibiting your conscious mind so that's not getting in the way of your subconscious mind and letting that do its job without too many heuristics getting in the way hopefully but I think um, the the second thing is there's definitely something in there about risk taking and I'm not entirely sure how important how to relate this to normal life but in a a sporting context um, that ability to take risks calculated risks at the right time comes from having a, a relaxed mindset and a, a sense of um, kind of proportion and, and relativity around it and um, yeah taking risks in 
in open-ended uh, sports is is an important part of being able to win, really. Yeah, really agree with you on everything you said there. And something that sprung to mind, and it's a bit of a motto of mine, is really getting out of your own way, which is what you were alluding mm. to, really, with the thinking fast, thinking slow, and not having the chirpy, slow bit getting in the way. And mm. then the risk-taking, which actually leads me really nicely on, because I think Ronnie alluded to this as well and and you said it's obvious I think or it can be more obvious in sport but how to apply it to real life so for example I think it's having that bravery to go for things even when your mind is urging you to stay safe that's particularly pronounced in sport but it can be experienced in any life and Ronnie learned this early didn't he where there was that semi-final that he had with Stephen Hendry in 2002 and they were 12 frames all and at that point Ronnie decided to play safe he thought, mm. oh, no, okay, we're getting to a key point. I'm going to play safe. Hendry did the opposite, got on the front foot, began risk-taking, and it paid dividends. So that's, a, again, a microcosm, I think, of, of a good attitude to life. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult quite to come away and say, yeah, you know, risk-taking in this form is always good or it's always bad because yeah. I no. think, obviously, it's so situationally dependent. Um, of course, yeah. And... and um, yeah, and I, I think that's also what what Ronnie's saying. He's he's saying actually, um, probably at the points where you least want to take a risk, you know, in the really high uh, profile, high result games, are the po- are the moments where you you actually most need to take those risks because the uh, the margins are that much smaller, and um, it's those those small differences that that win the the big competitions. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that it can seem like playing it safe in sport or in life is the safer option. But as was shown in that moment, actually, that can be a bit illusory. Yeah, um, it can be. Again, um, I guess it's very situationally dependent. Um, I a, a, An example for me, when I first won a, a triathlon world title, going back a long time to 2009, uh, it was basically a race, a, a five-series uh, set of races to win the world title after I'd won four of the races and I stood on the start line of the the final race, the fifth race, um, you know, with all the stats in my head, basically going, oh, if um, this guy come, wins, then I only need to come fifth. And if this guy comes second, I only need to come seventh. And, you know, working out actually who could potentially beat me on the day and what I was going to do if a puncture. I just thought I haven't actually been in this position all year where I've been, you know, thinking of the negatives and thinking of what if this person beats me. I'm just thinking, no, actually, um, you know, it's all about how am I going to win this race rather than how many, how many people am I going to lose to? And yeah, I think, uh, again, it's kind of a very kind of big anecdote in sport, isn't it? But um, yeah, being positive, uh, being on the front foot, being being willing to take risks at the right time, um, I think are all very important attributes. And like you say, it's situational dependence. So you don't want to be completely acting with wild abandon in any area of life. But I think <laughs> just being on that edge, a little bit of like, Oh, I feel a little bit mm. out of my comfort zone. That's where you want to be. And I think, you know, you know that in sport, I'm sure, but that the same applies to life. You spoke to as well, Chris Froome, and there was a, a line that stuck with me from your chat with him that I thought really relates to your way of living as well. Because you said, you know, what you train 1500 hours a year. So that's four hours a day, every day. And you've been doing that for for quite a few years now. And you said this, which is, choosing to suffer to not suffer 
So mm. could you just explain what that means, really? <laughs> well, in theory, you're pushing yourself as hard as you can in, in training day in, day out, so that when it comes to a race or a competitive situation, it's easier. That's the principle. Uh, of course, it's a bit of a sleight of hand because racing very rarely is easy in any form, you know, even at Chris Froome at his best. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was uh, going to some dark places, even when he was winning races off the front on a mountain, riding up on it on his own with his teammate, you know, with a, with his uh, competitors chasing behind. I don't think he was thinking like he was out for a fun Sunday ride at the time. Um, so you're still suffering, but yeah, it's what you, you know, I think a lot of the time it is what you tell yourself, right? If I'm going to try really, really hard to, to make the racing easy. And yeah, on the, the flip side that Chris talks about of using um, suffering in racing um, in some of his kind of, I guess, less important early season races um, as a massive motiva- motivator to to make him suffer in training. And, and, and that's true. And I think um, something that the book doesn't cover so much, but uh, it's definitely kind of something unique to endurance athletes or some endurance athletes that having a relationship with um suffering but also the kind of joy and satisfaction um you get out from really pushing your body not even to win races just pushing your body for the sake of pushing your body and um getting home from a training session and getting in the shower taking off the kit and just knowing yeah i've I've, um, <laughs> I've gone hard today you know i've pushed and, and got everything out that i could <laughs> Yeah. I had an interesting chat with a chap called John Neal, who's basically head of coaching uh, at the ECB, but he's done all sorts of jobs in sport, a bit of a background in neuroscience. And he said something that frustrates him about normal business compared to sport is that, let's say, um, in most workplaces, if they do training, they're kind of training to train. So they'll turn mm. up, have a cup of coffee, a bit of a chat, and they're not being put under pressure. Whereas mm. the difference in sport is, is that you want to be putting yourself under pressure in training so that when you're in the situation, you're toughened to it. And I thought an, that's an, an analogy for that is just, just getting out of your comfort zone in whatever sphere it is, because then it's always growing, it's always growing. And I think that that difference between sport and real life is quite marked. Could you see that being a big difference? Yeah, I think um, what, what I was talking about just then is that I was talking about a very specific kind of feeling of um endurance training and pushing yourself and you know it's very different when you're the one pushing yourself uh and knowing actually whatever you know i've got 30 seconds left of a rep or uh i'm going as hard as i can and then 30 seconds i'm going to stop than it is when someone is forcing and pushing you and some people are kind of good at both some people are good at one and good at the other um but it's obviously the latter that other people pushing you um I, I can definitely see that happens in all forms of life and yeah the, the cliche is getting out of your comfort zone for sure and yeah I, i'm talking in terms there very much of like physiological stress vo2 max how hard can i pedal to keep up with this person or how hard can i run to keep up with that, this person and i use the anecdote of uh, teaching myself from a, a, an early age on local bike rides of just staring at a spot on the back of someone's bike and telling myself that nothing on the planet is going to make me get any further away from that spot and just taking everything else on my mind apart from the focus on making sure that spot doesn't get any further away. And, and yeah, that, again, that's the physiological side of it. But then you're bringing the psychology of, um, yeah, you know, someone's kind of effectively forcing this on me. Uh, how do I deal with it? 
and uh, I think probably what's kind of a closer analogy to real life, um, like you said, I don't know much about it, but I imagine is um, just the actual high stress <laughs> situations. So in tactical events like cycling and, and yeah. triathlon and other various um you know sporting like snooker with ronnie you know when if he's a couple of frames down the crowd's giving him jip and things aren't going right you know that's effectively uh other other external factors people and other factors putting you under immense amounts of external psychological pressure that you, that you have to be able to cope with and yeah i think um it's definitely something i realized in my training relative probably late on in my career in lots of ways that yeah I could go through years so what tends to happen in sporting careers is you come up in kind of relatively chaotic environments I guess you know you're not the the most significant person in the environment you if you're a triathlete you're doing it across swimming cycling running but um those environments are dictated to you so so you get good at dealing with chaos and dealing with external stresses and and stuff and then you get to a stage where you're the, the significant person in the environment and you can dictate them. And, of course, what happens there is you get detrained at dealing with external stresses and chaos. And then I got to the, yeah, I got to the point where I realized that and I don't want these. I don't want to be able to dictate these environments. I want um, them to be dictated to me because that's a skill that I have to develop and you know keep up to date with to be as good as possible in races. And, yeah, so... Uh, kind of go to the, the point of seeking them out now and, and have them for quite a while. Yeah, just a bit of a NB at this point. So at the beginning, we obviously said that how you've developed a bit of a, an empathy, if you like, or an understanding of being on the other side of the microphone. So I always think back to a really formative job for me, which was um, charity fundraising, the people that stop you in the street, right? Mm. And I've got an empathy for them. It's a brutal job. So mm. I would be sent to high streets and you're going, excuse me, and every, you're just being rejected hundreds mm. of times a day. And sometimes I'd be like, please, ground, swallow me up. I'd rather be anywhere but here. And now I look back on that, though, and I'm really grateful for that because I think even now the rejection that I went through over the summer that I did it has still sort of stood me in good stead. So I think that, you know, perhaps there's an element of comparison there. Obviously, it's not VO2 max or anything like that, but it's definitely... Uh, putting yourself in a sort of tough environment. Um, mm. Anyway, that was just uh, something that popped up. Uh, and so actually- you, you always say yes now then? No, do you know, I don't. I don't say no, <laughs> yes. Because I remember, obviously you want to make sales, should we say? But mm. actually what you don't want is for someone to be mean. So mm. all I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going to buy from you, but I just want to say, I have real respect for the job that you guys do. I know it's really tough. And by the way, I did this years ago and I look back on it as a really formative experience. Yeah. And so and so that's the way I do it. And uh, yeah. so I try and be nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and actually, you talked about this a little bit when you were talking with Michael Owen. Another quote that I picked out really is that where you define courage, it's putting yourself in the arena, isn't it? Exposing yourself to the pressure of top level sport in your case. But that is what courage is, putting yourself out there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's that very oft-quoted uh, Roosevelt quote, isn't there, about the, um, yeah. the plaudits belong with the person in the arena and not yeah. all the people in the galleries telling them what they should or shouldn't do effectively. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I mean, loads has been said about that, and that is definitely um, the case. Yeah, I, um, I enjoyed Michael Owen's section for... A lot of reasons. I, I think one of the other really big take-homes that I, I kind of enjoyed about what he says is he talks about 
a confidence. I think the words he uses a confidence and self belief. Yeah. Uh, and he anyway distinguishes between them. Yeah, and says, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's people with loads of confidence, which is kind of transitional uh, or transient. You know, comes and goes, can be there one game and gone the others. Whereas, yeah. you know, what you really need in sport, the the greatest people just have a inbuilt level of self belief, which means that after uh, bad games or lots of injuries, you know, and time out that he dealt with that you can come back and still have that um, belief in yourself to perform. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of never heard it articulated like that before, but I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that was a really nice way of describing it. So when he said that to you, because I know you said, oh, you're talking about confidence. And he said, no, 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 I'm talking about self-belief and made that distinction. What was kind of going through your head and, and how did you reconcile that with your own view of things? Yeah, I think it made a lot of sense and um, I agreed with what is probably my, you know, I've never kind of spoken about like spoken about it like that or, or understood it like that. But yeah, I really kind of have this feeling that, um, yeah, you know, confidence can come and go. It's something that you've got today because yesterday was good and can be gone tomorrow. But what Michael Owen uh, defined as self-belief is much more inbuilt um, and, and long-lasting. Yeah, I guess it, it's something something that I agree with. I think um, I think people can have a lot of both or a little of both. I think um, it changes over time. I think you know self-belief isn't you're not born with it necessarily, and you have loads of it for your whole life. Maybe unless you're Ian Botham, that seems to be his particular uh, you know, strength. But yeah, I'd say I'd say yeah, if we are distinguishing it in the format that Michael Owen did, I I'd say yeah, there's times where my self belief has been high, and other times where it's waned a little bit, and you know it's got it's gone up and down. So, but that to say it's much more stable than what would describe as confidence, for example, which is much more, yeah, like I said, transient and, and variable and depends, mm. can depend on the event, the venue, the, the weather, my fitness, mindset, uh, yeah. injury. Your, mood, you know, your mood. Yeah, yeah, mood, yeah. Exactly. Like so many things. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I had an interesting conversation with uh, Russ Harris, who's um, an interesting guy who does uh, acceptance and commitment training. So obviously a lot of people chase, let's say, confidence. A lot of people want to feel confident. And actually he explained that the definition of confidence has, has changed over the years. And actually it used to mean to trust yourself to behave or to, let's say, get in the arena, to go back to that quote irrespective of how you feel. Even if, let's say, your emotional confidence is low, you trust yourself to still do what needs to be done. And I wonder, have you had many experiences, for example, of winning big stuff when perhaps you didn't feel confident? Yeah, absolutely. My proudest races are ones that I've won when I didn't think I was going to be able to win it. I I, I think, um, yeah, I from the very early days, I kind of... You know, coming up through the ranks, I went into races and um, and events that I thought I had no chance of ever winning, and you know, did well and won. Um, and so, from early on, I kind of knew that this um, thing that would kind of describe as confidence wasn't as important as mainstream psychology at the time would tell me. That oh yeah, you've got to be confident, you know, and you've got to believe it to be able to win it. I just kind of knew that was the not the case because I'd stood on start line thinking I haven't got. A, Catanel's chance of winning this race and then, <laughs> then I'd win it so uh, I just knew that wasn't true and then obviously yeah since then you know more confidence and uh, I've had periods where I'd say I've been you know supremely confident so confident I think um, you know there's only one person who's going to cause me to lose this race today and there's 60 people on the start line and that one person's me and there's other races still you know where I've you know, been a bit injured or ill or something and um, been really low on confidence starting on the start line but I'm thinking yeah very pragmatic I think I'm a kind of pragmatic kind of approach these things in a pragmatic way and thinking yeah I haven't got any chance of um, doing well here or I've got a very little chance you know rather than having a an 80% chance of winning this race I've got a 5% chance but um, I'm going to do everything I can to maximize that 5% chance and find a way you know making it 10-15 and ultimately winning the race and so yeah I think that's probably what you were alluding to earlier when you say yeah not having this feeling of confidence, but um, I kind of always, yeah, had this uh, feeling that actually put me in the the events in in the arena. I, I've got a quite a lot of belief in myself of of finding a way to um, finding a way to get the maximum outcome given the given the circumstances. Really, the circumstances of my fitness ability, the course, you know, all the other external factors. Yeah, that is what Russ was saying, really. It's, it's trusting yourself to give of your best and to get the most out of yourself, irrespective of how you feel. And yeah. so confidence is nice, but it's not essential. I think a lot of people perhaps wait for confidence to act. I mean, maybe that comes back to what we were saying earlier about risk-taking, you know, mm-hmm. all that fine line of risk-taking. You know, a lot of people perhaps want to wait until they feel a certain amount of confidence, but actually, no, it's, it's take the actions and hopefully the feelings will come, but there's no guarantee and they're not crucial anyway. Well, I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg at that point, isn't it? You, you need the actions yeah. to get the confidence. And until you've had the exactly. actions, you don't have the confidence. So, um, yeah, you need somewhere to get into that cycle. <laughs> Absolutely. And another thing really was around the importance of environment. It sounded like you had a lovely chat with Mark Webber, who I've, I've never chatted to myself, but he seems like a lovely fella. I particularly liked his what he said to you just as he was about to hop in his helicopter about, look, look, mate, we're not trying to invent penicillin here. You know, we're, we're just riding cars. And, and I thought that was a really nice way of, 
of having perspective about what you're trying to do as a Formula One driver or as an athlete. But what I thought was really interesting was, so you, you talked about Antonio, you probably know how to pronounce it better than me, Antonio Pizzania. Yeah, that's, that's as good that, as I can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, as you say, in it, you hadn't heard of him. The people reading are unlikely to have heard of him. But when he mm. was coming up with Mark Webber, he was seen as the guy, but he couldn't do it on, on the biggest stage. But as well, Mark spoke about putting himself in the environment against people like Lewis, against Alonso, against Seb Vettel. Because when you're putting yourself up against really, really good people, you're forced to raise your own game. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it, that is partly kind of the angle that Mark's going at. It's also, um, I think, in sport, although I think actually in any of it, <laughs> trying to go back to what it might be like in real life, uh, <laughs> you know, there's people who um, can raise their game for big occasions. There's people who, you know, can maintain their game for big occasions, if you like, and there's people who in somewhat find them struggle with those occasions and um, their game is less in, in some shape or form. And um, yeah, I think what Mark is talking about there is, you know, I think he's kind of saying, yeah, he didn't ever feel like he was the most talented, whatever that word means, or able drivers, but compared to um, Antonio, uh, he, he might have been less able, but what he did have an ability to do was to raise his driving when he, when he got on that grid and he was racing um, around the track, you know, in the big F1 days, which which at the end of the day is, is a massive part of the puzzle. Um, and you see that, you definitely see that in my sport, you see it in all sports. Some people are just fantastic at getting the best out of themselves on, on the biggest days. Other people aren't. Um, other people are fantastically consistent. So I spoke to Clark Carlisle. He said that he thinks the thing that makes the great players, and he cited Thierry Henry, was their ability to get in that flow state consistently. And it sounds like, you said when we brought it up earlier, it, it's something that you've experienced a lot. And obviously, you know, you're as good as it comes in, in your own sport. You're a legend of triathlon. The opposite of that, I guess, is so you spoke about some people can raise their game. You fall into that bracket. Thierry Henry did. Uh, some people are consistent and then some people perhaps don't perform. And what it made me think, again, is is kind of getting in your own way you know, oh my gosh, this is such a big deal. I've got to do X, I've got to do Y. The brain's going mad. And as a result, all the automatic processes start to become less automatic, essentially. That's absolutely right on the big days. I think what interests me on it, you know, uh, I maybe uh, compete 10 times a year or even less, and maybe a few of those are the really big days. Um, it's fascinating in, in football, you know, with Thierry Henry that, you're trying to do that every week. I mean, I know not quite to the same extent. I think those really great players are probably so great that they can be at 80 or 90% and still quite often do what they need to do in a, in a Premier League game against, you know, a lesser team. And then obviously when they're playing in the Champions League semi-final or FA Cup, or, you know, all those big days, they, they probably have to lift it that 5%. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's a couple of things there. There's been able to have different grades of, I guess, kind of, processing and, and functioning on different days knowing how to access them and when and knowing when when to use them um like you know to go on to the uh to dennis Irwin talks about it in the book about the guys that uh mm. you can just rely on them when you need them there with poor skulls style and um you know just incredible yeah, yeah. ability to score 93 minute uh winners when you when you need it and 
yeah, you, you have to ask actually, really, if you look at that from a like a statistical point of view, uh, a very logical point of view, is that really the case, or actually can it be accounted for just by chance or whatever? But it doesn't really matter, you know. It's an incredible story um, that that the, the there's people out there that you just Absolutely, know. Yeah. When everything stacked against them, and in in the most important times and the most higher pressure situations, that they uh, that yeah, everyone relies on them to go and do that job. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Ian Botham. I want to get on to uh, to Beefy because he's almost like a cartoon character of what you imagine a top performing sports personality to be, and I, I'm glad he very much lived up to that in your descriptions of him. But talk to me about Ian Botham and your your perception of him because he was a bit different from everyone else, wasn't he? Yeah, I was lucky enough to talk to um, Ian because, um, yeah, I've, I've met him a few times. I've, I know his son, Liam, a little bit. And so, you know, I've kind of yeah, had a bit of a relationship with him over the years. And so, yeah, he was kind of on my list. And, and obviously, of characters to talk to and people who performed uh, performed at that level and also kind of in a different era to a lot of the other people I've talked to as well. And I think that made him interesting and yeah, talking about interview techniques, you know, as you all know, there's a whole um, range spectrum of people that you talk to from people who will answer the questions that you want to get answered as you put them to and the people who don't answer any of them. And, uh, and Ian basically just kind of said, this is what I want to talk to you about. Let's go. And I just sat there and listened uh, to some extent. Um, and but it was, it was absolutely fascinating. It was brilliant. It was you know, obviously a, a sporting career that being from Yorkshire, Northern England, following cricket and uh, know plenty about, but to sit there and hear him describe, you know, what went on in those, that, that famous uh, Ashes series and et cetera, et cetera, um, was just brilliant. Let's quickly touch on that, Alistair, because that was a really entertaining passage. So the Ashes series, 86-87, England had been written off. There was that famous quote, there's only three things wrong with them. They can't bat, they can't bowl, and they can't field. And basically he went out there and there were these strict rules about not having your you know, your wives or your girlfriends there. And he was like, right, I'm not having any of that. I had this room in the hotel, party there every night, pizza, like beers and all sorts. But it actually worked. A really nice line that stuck with me was, you know, if you'd had a bad day, by the time you left that room at the end of the night, you'd have had a good day. And, and there was something in there was something in that sense of togetherness, camaraderie, fun that clearly sort of seeped through into the, the way they actually performed because they ended up winning that series very famously. So it shows the importance of that connection, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I train and compete, you have a team of people around you. I'm lucky enough to train with a great group of people. I have some, you know, incredibly dedicated people to help me day in, day out in my training um, and have a team in that sense. But really, when I stand on the start line, you're on the start line pretty much on your own uh, and you're there to perform. So I was kind of really interested to talk to um, people who, you know, this experience in team sports and kind of tease that out of them and, that's obviously one, one, the angle with both of them. Um, and yeah, it was fascinating, you know. And, and yeah, we, we kind of all feel that, that those intangibles of the environment when things are going well and things aren't going so well and things are cohesive. And yeah, you can only imagine that in, in really tough situations like walking out onto the crease at the MCG or whatever to, to <laughs> face the Australian bowlers, that sense that you know that your teammate is there for you and is also not going to let you down when time comes is 
really flipping important when you're talking about the one or two percenters. So, yeah, kind of um, a way to go about it. And, yeah, you know, in some ways you can go, oh, that's a bygone era of, you know, we wouldn't allow that, that raucous behaviour now. But, you know, in other ways, I don't know, I imagine – the ECB and various other team sports, I imagine millions of pounds are spent on team building exercises. Um, so yeah, the, there's yeah, many yeah. ways, there's many ways to skin a cat and, um, yeah, it, it is, it's just fascinating, you know, yeah. obviously of its time. And, um, yeah, I, it, it was kind of absolutely crucial just to have that bit of perspective in the book, I think. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I was chuckling through that bit, actually. You, you could really imagine, you know, being... Especially the references being, to Elton yeah, John. Whatever. He... I'm going to do things my own way, whatever mm. you say. Yeah. But and actually it contrasted, I think, with Anna Hemmings, who I know is a kayaker and she does a lot of teaching, should we say, about taking the lessons from sport to business. But this struck me as almost the opposite of what happened within Botham on the Ashes series and what he was able to create. So Anna Hemmings, she basically... She had chronic fatigue, but what actually, through her, what's known as reverse therapy, what actually was shown to be the trigger for that, which, like I say, to me, is the opposite of what Botham was creating. Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know about kind of chronic fatigue, first in a sporting sense is, um, you know, it's the real nightmare scenario for any sports person because, to, well, to start with, you don't know what's caused it. You might never, you know, it might be a, a disease, some kind of virus that sets it off. You know, it might be other things. It and you know, quite often it's completely deliberating. It, uh, deliberating. It's you know, people don't recover from it. So it's one of those, you know, nightmare things that you can't see or feel or you know, do anything about. It's not like a cool calf. Um, in Anna's case, uh, kind of a change of training circumstances, training really hard on her own, a combination that probably. Um, you know, this word overtraining, again, that is kind of used in sport all the time, uh, for me is a, a real combination of physical things, obviously doing a lot of physical training. Although I've, I believe it's almost impossible to physically overtrain yourself if you're mentally happy. I'm, I've tried and it's not, it's not, it's not possible. Um, but um, I, I think, uh, I, I really do think, well, for me, it, it, it has a massive psychological component. The only time where I felt fed up with it is when I've been injured and, in um, Anna's case, it manifested off doing a lot of training on her own um, and the grind of that. And I think, although she doesn't quite explain it like this, um, you know, you can just imagine if you're going training, um, like kayaking, kind of my expert is similar to swimming up and down. If you're going and you're doing that two or three times a day, plus gym sessions and you're going out on the water on your own or actually to an environment that you're unhappy with, it's going to grind you down. You know, a lot of my motivation for going training is because I'm going training with my friends or it's a competitive situation or I'm seeing people that I want to see and having a laugh with people that I want to have a laugh with among many other motivations. Um, if you're removing that, you can just, yeah, to go back to the kind of bucket analogy of, um, of having motivation, you've only got so much. And once you start running down that bucket, something, something starts to, to give um and in this case it was it was chronic fatigue and it took a understandably quite a long time to work out um exactly kind of i, I guess the root the root causes of that she basically was doing the same training so she'd moved hadn't she she'd been training with other people she'd mm. been with her coach so she'd had that physical and close-up connection with other people 
and then moved. The training was the same. The only difference was the connection had been removed. And I was thinking in terms of you, obviously, famously, you and your brother, and there's always been the two of you, and there's always clearly been that that supportive element as never more highlighted than that famous race in 2016 when he was having a wobble at the end and and you came and, uh, as you say, to try and win Sports Personality of the Year award, hooked his arm around your neck and you basically carried him over the finishing line. Whenever you've competed, you and your brother have always been there. And actually, when I think of 2012, when I interviewed you, you know, you, you were there together. So you've always had that connection on tap. Do you think that's, that's helped you throughout your career? I think, uh, yeah, the connection has been very important. Um, I think the way that you've kind of uh, set the scene in terms of the, the psychological component of just having someone there, you know, motivation to get out the door, you know, if your brother's going, I'm, I've got to go. Um, yeah, emotionally having someone there, you know, through the support of, of traveling and training and racing and the stresses of that to standing on the start line of Olympic Games next to each other and just being, you know, having a friendly face and a joke. You know, I think all that is um, is really important. Being able to push each other in the in the very hardest of sessions. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think all that is 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 really important too. Um, I think the other thing, kind of that story and about Anna's story. I think, like you said, yeah, the connections are really important. Um, but the other thing is, you know, even the most robust, um, strong sports people, I think it's. You know, quite often they're on a really fine line. You know, you're 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 pushing yourself to yeah, cliches, but to, to your limits. You know, most days you're whether that's probably physiologically and and mentally. You know, you're tired. You're going training. You're tired the next day. You're going training, all for the good of some event that's coming up in in three months. Um, and yeah, I think there's there's the kind of thing that the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I've definitely. Kind of unfortunate, unfortunately, seen seen that in sport quite a lot. Quite a minute ago, came out with pong back in my head around you can't push yourself enough, or there is no ceiling to the amount you can push yourself if you're happy. The importance of connection in terms of making you happy, and then being able to push yourself for Anna, that lack of it made her essentially ill. And connecting with others is such a fundamental need, and for you, it's helped you perform at the greatest of all time level. Yeah, I um, I completely agree, and unfortunately, it's one of those things in life, like you just said, is that we don't always appreciate until until we yeah. it's not there anymore. And yeah, I definitely had exactly the same experiences. Yeah, when those connections have been removed or destroyed for various reasons, it's really taken kind of the impetus and the positives out of a a situation, an environment, and and made it kind of not only slightly, you know, five percent worse. It's made it gone you know just completely impractical and mm. so um yeah i and i found that in the uh in lockdown probably about this time last year when um effectively i was training on my own pretty much every day because they they were the they were the rules um and i found that tough you know like i said a lot of my motivation for training is because i enjoy that connection i enjoy that social aspect um and yeah that, i think that has many forms it is just what we call like probably human connection but yeah it's having it's fun it's joke it's just communicating um but in a sporting sense i think it's also being competitive and getting best out of each other i think i think that is kind of part of what we probably could define as connection in the sporting setting that reminded me of a quote of alex danson who's been on she said you know the winning 
is not as great as the pursuit of winning. And actually, in your book, you said that after winning gold in Rio, that you weren't kind of sure how to feel. So I'm interested how the comparison of, say, winning gold was to how you felt after, for example, helping your brother over the line that time, which was you know, a very touching moment of brotherly love, of connection. How did the wins compare to a moment like that that is special for different reasons? Uh, yeah, the wins were very different. Uh, I think the thing is with the Olympics is, and, and why it's hard to compare to anything else is you've spent years working up and building up to that moment, you know, massive amounts of stress, uh, like sleepless nights as, as well as, you know, hours and hours of, of work and, and dedication um, for those events. And, and, you know, in the case of London, that was seven years before when I first heard the London Olympics were going to be on. So um, when you kind of cross the line and you've done it, it's like, you know, it's a pretty, pretty big moment. Um, and yeah, a, a thousand emotions go through your mind, obviously happiness and, and joy, but also um, you're just glad that you've done it, you know, you know and uh uh, but the fact that you can relax and it's there and yeah the, I mean to be completely honest about it relief it, um, is part of it um, yeah. I think um, yeah the, the helping Johnny over the line thing my overriding emotion at the end was I was just frustrated that he'd messed it up because uh, <laughs> uh, you know he was he should have won the race <laughs> and won the world championship and genuinely was um, and then it was stress because obviously I'd, I'd kind of knew Johnny was in a really bad way. He was basically in the intensive care hospital unit there at the event. And um, I was kind of speaking to various whatever coaches and my parents were ringing me from the UK and because uh, we were, it was in Mexico. So, uh, you know, and they were obviously concerned. So, yeah, I was, it was pretty stressful. Um, and I was, yeah, wor- worried about my brother. Have you ever asked him what that moment I know you're Yorkshire lad, so probably not. But has he ever shared with you what what it meant to him to be tended to by his older brother? Uh, he, yeah, we are, um, yeah, we're Yorkshiremen, so I don't think uh, anytime soon we're going to sit down and have a heart to heart about the ins and outs of uh, our feelings for each other before and after the moment and reflect upon it. Um, but yeah, maybe one day when we're a bit older. Uh, yeah, he um, he bought yeah. me. He he made the point of buying me a very good present after it, uh, which was very good of him. Um, and apart from that, we've just basically made a joke out of it, really. <laughs> well, that says it all. I mean, that's basically like a huge admission of of gratitude and love, I suppose. So, I mean, yeah. can can you just acknowledge? I'm going to press you here, Alistair. Can you mm. just acknowledge that it was a heartwarming and very special moment? Uh, I can acknowledge that many other people. Uh, <laughs> Many other people understood it as a heartwarming and special moment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's as good as I'm going to get from you. Right, last last thing then, Alistair. So at the beginning, you really set out to answer the question: What is it that makes champions like yourself, or people like Ronnie, or multiple winners? So people who who win and win and win, not just the odd win, but just want to dominate over a period of time and you wanted to understand what the motivating factors were and at the start you posed the question is it hunger is it greed is it habit is it fear so what did you learn about that question what is the the general thread that links all of them i think and this might sound like uh 
sitting on the fence, but allow me to write a good essay about it, um, is that it's um, very, it is genuinely very multifaceted. And um, I don't think we can, um, you know, what works for one person might not work for the other. But uh, I, I think the, the kind of common thing that uh, ties all of it together is someone has a, a real deep passion for, for doing whatever it is well. Um, and I think part of that is what you said earlier in what Alex Danson said of, you know, enjoying the process and uh, genuinely loving the process and being motivated by that. Um, I, th- I think there's some kind of underlying form of that. But for, and for some people, I think it is more of an obsession. It's just what I do and how I do it, and it's who I am. Yeah, we, we haven't talked about horse racing and jockeys, but that's one of the things that came across for me. No. It's just the intensity of it. You know, there's you're just on a different level to do it three times a day, most days, you know, hundreds of races a year for 20 years. You know, it's yeah. incredible when you look at kind of the AP uh mccoy way of doing things and yeah he he said yeah you've just got to be consistent but yeah consistent in everything consistent obviously in your your drive your will to win and i think that as much as anything answers kind of the the question in that yeah it just has to be something deep down and built in that drives you to do it and then yeah there can be loads of other kind of facets that come off that if you like you know things like being super motivated being dedicated being been some people are scared of losing and moving on some people aren't it's just for the thrill of winning and um, to kind of conclude everyone is different just like in the rest of life thanks for listening to this week's episode of life lessons with alistair brownlee i hope you enjoyed our conversation do drop me a line with any thoughts guest suggestions or similar you may have and thanks to everyone who's already been in touch every message is much appreciated i'm at simon mundy on social media and you can email me via my website simonmundy.com and do sign up for my newsletter monday on monday while you are there where i share some of the best lessons i've learned from over three years of these conversations next week's newsletter looks at the art of setting goals properly and how it can be used even to just feel a little bit happier and less stressed on a day-to-day basis. Head to simonmundy.com to sign up. That's it for now, though. Until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.